0: This week's parasha is parasha's Vayigash. Vayigash means, and he approached. And we pick up right where we left off. Joseph has now seized Benjamin. Benjamin is now alleged to have stolen Joseph's special goblet. Uh, and all the brothers head back to Egypt. They're very devastated. They had made, especially Judah, had pledged away his life in this world and in the next to ensure that to Jacob to uh, guarantee that Benjamin is going to be safe, and now Benjamin looks like it's all all hope is lost. And Judah has a, a he's a very aggressive argument that he presents here uh, before before Joseph. And this is really the crescendo of the story because very soon afterwards, Joseph is going to let everyone know who he really is and admit it, and everything's going to shift back. I think it's really interesting to examine what's Joseph's motivation. So everyone tries to understand here. Joseph, already last week's parasha, starts this cat and mouse game where he starts playing, playing with his brothers, telling them they're spies, uh, imprisoning them, sending them away, bring Benjamin, who are you? I don't know this, I don't know that. Takes Shimon as a hostage, demands to see Benjamin, uh, plays all these games by putting their, their money back in their satchels. And again, he does it again. And the big question I what to try to figure out here is what's his motivation? Uh, what's he trying to accomplish? Now, last week we suggested one approach that, Ju- that Joseph was trying to test the brothers to see if they have changed since they vilified him many years prior. They wanted, he wanted to see, it's been 22 years since then, and there was a lot of tension between the brothers, specifically uh, the brothers from different mothers, and he wanted to just see what if that was still present. That's one approach. I had another theory last night, um, m- maybe a, a suggestion about what he's trying to do here. At the end of last week's Parsha, so Joseph takes Benjamin, and the brothers say to him, Send Benjamin back, and we will all be slaves for you. What essentially the brothers are doing, all the brothers that were part of the scheme to sell Joseph, right? it was everyone besides for Benjamin, all of them are offering themselves as slaves to Joseph. They don't know he's Joseph yet. But I think it's really interesting. The brothers, they committed a horrible crime prior, twenty years, twenty years prior, by selling their brother as a slave. And I think it's appropriate if they're going to rectify that, if they're going to uh, achieve repentance, it would be through the same process where they're saying, Benjamin should not be offered as a slave, we're guilty, and thus we really are deserving of everything that we did to you. That was last week's parasha, part of the repentance process. Joseph now, he accomplishes that. He calls him back then, and it's really interesting to, to highlight what Judah... What he tells Joseph. And he recounts the whole story. And then at the end, he tells them that he highlights Jacob. And he says, Jacob is so invested in Benjamin and please don't make him, nothing happen to him. And his, uh, his, their souls are, are interlocked. The, the souls of Jacob and Benjamin are bound up. And what's going to happen? He's going to suffer so much. And I think it's really interesting. The brothers, when they made their fateful decision to sell Joseph, well, who suffered as a result? We know the verse tells us that Jacob was inconsolable. And the brothers didn't seem to take that into account when they made the decision. They didn't think about what's going to happen to Jacob. So really, the brothers' crime was a crime against Joseph and a crime against their father, where they didn't take into account his suffering and they just went with what they thought was correct. So in order for them to really achieve repentance, they have to experience what they did to, to Joseph, and they also have to wallow in the thought of their father's suffering to fix that part of their misdeed. They initially had a total disregard, apparently, for the pain of Jacob with the sale of Joseph, and now, with the pending imprisonment And enslavement of Benjamin, they're suddenly so concerned. Obviously, they've changed and they've repented. Once Joseph sees that, he can reveal himself to his brother because his mission of assuring that his brothers achieve atonement is fulfilled. Joseph is being very magnanimous here. He doesn't. We see from the end of the story, continuation of the story, he doesn't really have any animosity to his brothers, even though his brothers still suspect that he does. But truly, he doesn't. And when he, and initially when he reveals himself to them, the first thing he says is that this was not your plan, this was God's plan. God sent me here to ensure that we have food and will be taking care of us and to really usher in the next era of Jewish history. Joseph finally decides to spill the beans and he immediately announces that everyone should leave the room. Now if you remember anything about his brothers, they were all strapping... Powerful, strong men that uh, had a tendency to to sometimes use that violence without maybe properly thinking about the consequences. But the commentators point out is that Joseph is now going to tell the brothers who he is, and it's going to hit them like a ton of bricks in the mistakes that they made, and they're going to be ashamed and embarrassed. And he doesn't want to have them ashamed and embarrassed in front of the collected multitudes. This is obviously this is in a throne room. There's lots of people there. Everyone is out besides for them, even though Joseph is risking what could happen to him before he lets them know what's what's true. What's not we see, like Judah's he's you know, he's approaching him, he's intimidating Joseph almost. And regardless, Joseph sends everyone out. So no one else should be there when he admits, makes himself known to his brothers. So he starts crying and the news gets everywhere and Joseph tells them the very fateful sentence. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers are absolutely silent. They're dumbfounded. They're, they're struck because they would, wait, it says they were disconcerted. They just, they, they couldn't, they couldn't look at it. Like they, they couldn't, it, it just, it was too much for them to bear. And it's interesting, the very famous midrash here that compares this encounter to the one that we will have with God. It's an interesting idea. Very, very famous midrash that says that when Joseph says, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? When he says that, those words, And suddenly everything becomes clear for the brothers. They're speechless. They can't say anything. And the Midrash tells us that in the future day of judgment and day of reckoning, it's going to be the same. You know, Joseph is a a human. He's a younger brother of the people that are assembled. And when he reveals himself, they have nothing to say. How much more so, says the Midrash, when the Almighty will... Reveal, so to speak, the truth to us and say upon each person what they really are, how much more so will they be left speechless? That's what the majorist tells us. I think the lesson is like this. Joseph's brothers, they had all the justifications in the world for what they did. But these were righteous men. They had, they, you know, they, they, they weren't just consumed by anger they were maybe influenced by anger or envy. But they had rationalizations for everything they did. Everything they were able to justify. They had excuses for everything. And you know what? In our life, with our failings, we also have excuses. Yeah, what do you mean? Like we, 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 It's not hard for us to assemble a list of excuses for why we're not great people. It's not, it's not, an easy, not a hard thing for us to do a, at all. But then Joseph comes before his brothers and he says, I'm Joseph. I'm the ones you sold. And look at me now. Is my father still alive? Right? Everything that I had predicted that was going to happen, the dreams, they all came true. You guys have bowed down before me. And suddenly all the rationalizations for their behavior just go up in smoke and they have nothing to say. Because what he's doing is revealing the truth to them. And the truth is that he's Joseph, is the father still alive, I still care about my father. Did you care about your father when you did what you did? And the truth is just so clear and present before them, they have nothing to say. All the excuses suddenly have disappeared. What do you mean? You had, you had reasons why you did it. How come you can't say them now in front of the judge and jury? Well, the answer is, is that when the truth is presented in the four, in, in this instance, uh, there's nothing really to say. And the minister tells us that's exactly what's going to be like when we're confronted by God. And the words used there is that God is going to give judgment on each person exactly what they, he's going to tell them what they are. What this means is, everyone's going to say uh, why their excuses were valid, and why they didn't accomplish what they needed to have accomplished. But, there's going to be other areas of life where despite all the uh, resistance that we claim to have were able to succeed in so many other areas. You know, people say, well, huh, I, I, I couldn't study Torah. I was so busy. So busy. I had a couple jobs and a family. And they might as pull out the uh, Netflix playlist <laughs> and say, okay, like, you're really busy. Let's look. Okay, well, let, let's look how many hours in 2016 were spent watching television. And obviously you weren't that busy and it's not telling you anything that's not you. It's just looking at what you did and thus it's really showing that your excuses are really just excuses. You know? Um, people who say, well, I don't have the mind to study tar. I just, it's too much information, it's too complicated. But somehow in other areas of life they're able to wrap their heads around lots of pieces of data. Someone once said that uh, every, I don't know if this is true anymore, but every every 8-year-old kid knows how many RBIs and how many home runs all the players on their favorite team have. And if you actually assemble all that information kind of write it all out, it's a staggering amount of data. So it's not that they're incapable of memorizing lots of information, lots of Torah. It's just that they choose to prioritize with their time, with their with their effort, with their money, with their mind, with their intellect, other things. And thus, really the excuses are just excuses, and that's what Joseph did. Joseph didn't tell them anything remarkable. He just exposed the truth. He said, is my father still alive? I care about my father. Do you care about him? I'm Joseph. This is just, this is me. And they have nothing to say because everything, all their arguments and all the justifications go by the wayside. And the next thing he tells them is also important. They don't respond and he tells them further, approach me, and they approach him, and he says, I am Joseph, your brother, that you sold me to Egypt. Important that Joseph is addressing the elephant in the room. You know, it's been 22 years, but when your brothers sell you as a slave, it's probably something that you remember. And what he's saying to them is that, listen, listen, Let's address it. This is going, could potentially cause a lot of conflict between us. But I want to put it on the table right now. You guys, my brothers, sold me as a slave to Egypt 22 years ago. That happened. Let's address it and let's, uh, move past it. He doesn't listen. Don't be distressed. Don't reproach yourself for having sold me. It was in order, God had this plan to make sure uh, that I'll be a provider for you, we still have a long way to go. there's five more years of famine ahead of us, and thus it wasn't your decision, so to speak. it was God who sent me ahead it was It was uh, under divine supervision that this that this should happen. yeah I think it's a good lesson you know sometimes when there's a conflict, someone gets into you know, it's before him Kipper and people try to uh, make amends, and they, they like to dance around the issue sometimes <laughs> because it's uncomfortable for everyone involved, uh, both the perpetrator and the victim. But sometimes it's good to just bring that to the table uh, because then it's at least the possibility exists for it to be, you know, addressed and discussed and brought out to the open. And not uh, linger in uh, the recesses of someone's uh, mind and consciousness. And Joseph he comforts his brothers, and he tells them to go bring Jacob. And he talks about his stature. He, he, I'm a master over Pharaoh and the whole household. I'm a ruler of, of Egypt. Go to my father. Tell him so said your son Joseph. God's made me master of all of Egypt. Come, don't delay. You live in the land of Goshen, everyone, everyone, your children, your grandchildren, and we'll have uh, plenty. Don't live in the famine in Israel. Come here. And he starts hugging and kissing his brothers and Benjamin and specifically, and all his brothers. Pharaoh finds out that there's a party going on at Joseph's house. He's excited. He has one Joseph and now there's 12 of them. Can't believe his good fortune. They load up the animals, they go uh, back to the land of Canaan, he gives them gifts, and he sends them ten donkeys for his father, laden with all the best fruits of of Egypt, and he instructs them, do not become agitated on the way. He realizes that there's going to be a lot of finger-pointing going on post-facto. Who was guilty, and you know, who's responsible, and who's going to pay the price for it. He tell them, don't try to be so on the way. Don't uh, don't argue about it because we won't really get uh, much uh, productive results from that. They go and they arrive uh, to Jacob. They tell him he doesn't believe them initially. And they re- retell him everything and finally he sees the wagons that Joseph sent and his spirit was revived. And he exclaims, uh, Jacob does, how great it is, my son Joseph is still alive, I'm going to go see him before I die. Jacob doesn't believe that Joseph is still alive. He doesn't believe it. And then finally, when he sees the wagons, then he believes it, and the spirit is a really strange sentence here. The Talmud tells us that when, all the way back when Jacob was still a 17-year-old, we're told that Jacob gave over all of his Torah to Joseph. And Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, we're told in the Talmud, he was able, he knew Torah even before it was given. They had access to Torah, a primitive form of Torah, or well not a primitive form of Torah, but a... a a form of torah even before sinai that was present in uh, uh in the collected knowledge of the jewish people starting with abraham the last bit of torah that jacob and joseph had studied was the section of egla arufa which means when uh, uh when someone dies And we don't know who, we just find a dead body. We don't know who killed him or how he died. And we don't know who's responsible. So we measure the distance of the corpse to the nearest city. And the people of that city, they have to undergo a process or they have to do a process by which they kind of wash their hands from this tragedy. When someone dies, maybe they weren't fed properly. They came to the city, no one offered them food and water and provisions. So that's the law. It's called egla Rufo. Egla is the Hebrew word for a wagon as well. And therefore, the Talmud tells us is that when he sees the agalot, when he sees that, and he remembers that that's uh, what the last thing they studied with Joseph, and Joseph's kind of sending him a subliminal message with, you know, wink, wink, I'm still around, I'm still the same Joseph, that really revives him. So maybe... It's possible that Jacob believed them. He didn't think they were lying. He knew Joseph was alive. But in Jacob's mind, and we'll see this again later on, to be alive, to be breathing, that doesn't mean anything. What he was really concerned about is, is Joseph still alive spiritually? Is he still maintaining? He's a king in Egypt. What's going to be with him? Is he still? Is he still the righteous Joseph? And that—that's what he didn't believe. And then he sees that Joseph is still referencing the Torah they studied 22 years ago, and he is um, mollified. And right away they start uh, plan their trip down to to Egypt. And before they leave, Jacob brings sacrifices. And on verse two in chapter. 46, God gives Jacob a prophecy and he tells them, I am the God, the God of your father. Have no fear in descending to Egypt for I shall establish you as a great nation there. I shall descend with you to Egypt. I shall also surely bring you up and Joseph shall place his hand on your eyes. So this is interesting. So we've mentioned already that Jacob did not have any prophecy for the entire duration of Joseph being gone. Right away, we find that Joseph's still alive. Prophecy immediately resumes. But it's, it's interesting to note that if you read the verse, it says, God spoke to Israel, to Jacob, in a night vision. So the prophecy was at night. Jacob is the only one of the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the verse explicitly says that he had prophecy at night. The previous time was when he was going to escaping from Esau or going to Laban. He had a nighttime prophecy with the ladder and the ascending and <coughs> descending uh, angels. So it's interesting that Jacob specifically is the one of the forefathers, or the only one of the forefathers to whom prophecy, at least in these two instances, is doled out specifically at night. The question is why? And I think, um, it's important to look at these two stories, these two episodes, and understand the context. Jacob, both times are Jacob leaving Israel. Initially, he's leaving Israel to escape from Esau, and to head to Lavan, but he's going into exile. It's the Jewish people, they're in Israel, and they're leaving. Again, the Jewish people are in Israel, with the exception of Joseph and his family. And now everyone is leaving Canaan, leaving the homeland, leaving the promised land, and descending to Egypt where they know they're gonna, it's not gonna end up so well for them. It's almost as if these are, it's night. It's exile. We don't have a clear connection, relationship with God in exile. And therefore, the Almighty is telling them, yes, it's nighttime, but even during the depths of despair of exile, I'm with you. I too shall go with you down to Egypt. Have no fear, descend Egypt, for I shall separate a great nation, I shall descend with you to Egypt. We're told in the Talmud that Abraham, he invented the Shachris, the morning prayer, Isaac, the afternoon prayer, and Jacob, the evening prayer. Because Jacob is the one. Who represents nighttime and the challenges that we have when God is not as close and his presence is not as clear. That is what Jacob represents. Indeed, that's Jacob as the father of the Jewish people. That's been our history for a long time. And specifically in the darkness, at night, God says, I'm still with you, I'm heading down with you to Egypt. You may not see it in the uh, in the depths of, of Torment that you're going to experience in Egypt, you may not notice it, but I'm still there with you, and that indeed is comforting for us to know that when bad things happen to us, collectively and as individuals, it's important for us to realize that we are the nation of Israel, we come from Jacob, and Jacob also was told specifically that even though we're heading towards exile and we're heading towards darkness, God is still with us, and that's very comforting. This is the same lesson of Hanukkah. Hanukkah was a ray of light in a sea of darkness. You know, we were under Greek occupation, but before that we were under occupation of others. We, and eventually that was we were passed on to the Romans and passed on to the Byzantines, to the Ottomans and the Mamelukes and everyone else. And that's what Hanukkah really represents. Hanukkah represents that even though we are immersed In exile, we still have this light, so to speak, in the darkness. So Jacob and his family and his children and grandchildren, they all get into the wagons that Pharaoh sent. They take all their animals and their livestock, all their wealth that they had amassed. And the Torah begins to count the names of this procession. And it goes through all the names, and it breaks it down in the four families of... Jacob, Jacob's four wives, 33 for Leah, 16 for Zilpah, 7 for Billa, and 14 for Rachel, and the total is 70. Now it's interesting, if you actually count the the names, you only end up with 69, because there's only 32 in the family of uh, of Leah, not 33. But the truth is, is that these were the ones who left Israel, who left Canaan, but one of them was born. There was a baby, there was a baby born right in, on the doorstep of Egypt, and that's Yocheved, who is going to be the mother of Moses. So this is interesting here. So Yocheved is born in the doorsteps between the walls of Egypt, which is an interesting terminology that the Talmud uses, that bef- like the between the walls is like kind of on the transition into Egypt. She's born. Now the question is, why does it have to happen like that? Like, why does it have to be that she's born like right as they're transitioning into Egypt? She's born. Like, so they stopped along the way and said, okay, now we need a we need someone. Uh, we need a midwife because there's a baby born. Oh, we're between the walls. You know, it seems very strange. I think the, the idea is that whenever God is about to smite the Jewish people, there's always going to be the remedy before the wound. That's God, the way God works with us. The remedy is always precedes the wound. The Jewish people, even though they're heading, well, the, the, the nascent Jewish people, even though they're heading to Egypt, as uh, you know the protected people family of Joseph they're going to end up being enslaved in Egypt but we know the stories that Moshe is going to lead them out of Egypt so before God places Jewish people in the plight that's going to befall them he has to already start planning so to speak the remedy uh, in the form of 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 Moses, and therefore Moses' mother had to be born before they actually entered. Zionism reached a crescendo 50 years before the Holocaust, uh, and all the groundwork was laid for a political movement never seen the world before, that just springs out of nothing in the late 19th century, uh, and causes masses of mig- migrants to go to Israel and to start building up the infrastructure. Before the destruction of the Jewish epicenter in Europe, it's kind of similar. And it's also, I think this, this, this sentiment is, is echoed as well in, in verse 28. So verse 28 here says that Judah was sent ahead of them to the land of Goshen and he, and then everyone else came to the land of Goshen. So Judah is is sent before them to to do something. So Rashi tells us that Judah was sent ahead of the crowd in order to establish some basic Jewish infrastructure, maybe a Jewish school, a synagogue, a yeshiva, something to ensure that there is something, you know, that, that there is a necessary infrastructure for a viable Jewish community in in Egypt, which is again similar to that idea that there's always going to we have to prepare before something actually happens where there's a shift, there has to be something, you know, the groundwork has to be laid for Jewish continuity. There's a historical uh, parallel to this where ten years before the destruction of the first temple Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar he sends as hostages, ten thousand people from Judah, which is the name of Israel or Canaan; those names are interchangeable, uh, at least geographically. He sends ten thousand, including the prophet Ezekiel, uh, in chains, really, to Babylon as hostages to prevent eruption of revolt from the Jewish people, and to look at the bride, the best and brightest of the Jewish people being sent away is very disconcerting. But the Talmud tells us is that this is God's once again, preparing the remedy before the wound. The wound is coming. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of the Jewish life in Israel is pending. It's 10 years away. We don't know that because we don't have the same foresight and vision. But God prepares what's going to be a very viable and vibrant Jewish community in Babylon by sending the best and brightest to establish the groundwork For Jewish civilization in Babylon, and that way, when the masses arrive, they find a uh, the infrastructure that can maintain that can maintain uh, um, a viable Jewish community for a a very long period. That people are going to be in Babylon, the people in Babylon for about almost twenty five hundred years, long time. That there is a Jewish center in Babylon, and during during much of that time, it's actually not a Jewish center; it's the Jewish center. Uh, of Jewish life. Now, it's interesting, in, in 1880, there was a huge migration of Russian and German Jews to the United States. Uh, many, uh, well, the initial influx of masses of Jewish immigrants to the United States was in the early part of the 1880s. And when they came to America, they did not find a viable Jewish infrastructure. It was the, you know, there weren't schools, there weren't kosher, uh, kosher, uh, food uh, establishments. There wasn't synagogues. There really, there were a few, but it wasn't enough, and that's why we see, uh, you know, the American Jewry, really, uh, you know, went uh, assimilated in mass in huge numbers because there wasn't this Judah being sent ahead or this plan for pre- preparation. Of the ground for uh, for for viable Jewish life, which is why there was a lot of resistance. Uh, people believed in in Europe that if you leave Europe and you leave Poland or you leave Lithuania, you leave Belarus, you leave these places where there's strong Jewish environments, and you go to America, you're done. Because people would go to America; they could be pious, but they get to America and they, can't, they have to work on Shabbos. There's no option to not work in Shabbos. And what happens? They, they just lose their, <coughs> they start systematically uh, becoming acculturated and assimilated and, and they're gone. And that's indeed unfortunately happened. Now, thank God it's not like that anymore. But we see the importance of having a Jewish infrastructure for, for where somebody can live. In fact, Maimonides tells us someone is not allowed to live in a city where there's not a Jewish school. Because what happens if you don't have a Jewish school? How do you educate your children? How do you do it? How do you do it? You can't. So it's the number one responsibility. You have to have, live in a place where there's a school, there's a shul, is, you know, there has to be, or else what's going to be with the future of the Jewish people? How, how can they possibly survive and thrive when there isn't the very basic infrastructure that allows that to happen? Now, so Judah sent ahead, the family's all heading down, and Joseph harnesses his chariot to go meet Jacob. And they have this really fateful encounter. Jacob, they see each other. Joseph falls on his neck and he cries and he hugs him. And it's interesting that this is somewhat of a one, of a one person show. While Joseph is emotionally hugging and kissing his father, Jacob appears to be stoic. All we hear about is, is Joseph. And there's a very famous teaching in the Talmud that Jacob wasn't hugging and kissing Joseph because he was saying the Shema prayer. It's a really strange idea because the Shema prayer is said twice a day, in the morning and at night. We already know about Joseph that he maintained his Jewish character even though he was immersed amongst the Gentiles. So if it it was the correct time to say Shema, they both should have been saying the Shema. If it was not the correct time to say the Shema, so why was Jacob saying the Shema? Either they both should have said it, neither should have said it. That's the question. And a lot of answers given. So there's a very famous answer given by the Maharal where he says that Jacob, after all, he was the father who didn't know that his son was alive. So his joy was much greater than Joseph's joy. Joseph knew his father was alive all the time, all along. And plus, the love of a father to a child exceeds that of a child to a father. So Jacob has more joy. And Jacob wants to inject the joy into a mitzvah. He has love that is bursting forth. He wants to inject that love into the first sentence of the Shema to love God. That's a famous answer given. My grandfather, in one of his books, he gives a really interesting, uh, another answer here. We're told in the Talmud that the Avos, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are the chariot of God. this means is that a chariot is always ready for the rider, and the rider decides whether he wants the chariot. So when... When one of the forefathers has prophecy, that is God choosing to speak to the, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're always ready for prophecy. Whereas uh, earlier in Genesis, we meet Cain. Cain descends from God. The reason why the prophecy ceased was not because of God removing himself, but because the receptacle, the vessel for Prophecy is being demoted and uh, downgraded to no longer being capable of prophecy. So Abraham and Isaac always maintain a constant ready state of prophecy should God want to talk to them. Now that is a product of focus, of preparation, of vigilance to always be at a ready state of prophecy. What happens when someone is encountering a love of such intensity that can make someone for a second almost forget about God. Jacob knew this was a problem because he didn't want to have his stature lessened. Therefore, as a way of preempting the perceived loss of spiritual readiness, Jacob says the Shema, Shema is, the intellectual affirmation of God's presence, and therefore he's counteracting the negative effect that it would have on his spiritual readiness for prophecy. Jacob was at a very high level of of spiritual readiness. He didn't want to lose that, not for a second, and therefore he ensured that he would say Shema right when he meets Joseph and thus maintain his level. So the Talmud in the Book of Brachos on page 5a, tells us that the best gold standard for resisting the Yetzirah, for for defeating the Yetzirah, is to agitate it with the Yetzir Tov, which means to convert the evil inclination to a good inclination. If your enemy is suddenly your ally, you don't have a battle. That's the best way. If that doesn't work, says the Talmud, someone should study Torah. Because studying Torah makes you above, rise above your Yetzirah and not be subject to a battle. If that doesn't work, someone should read the Shema. Or say it. Yeah, read the Shema, say the Shema. Mm. If that doesn't work, someone should remind him of the day of death. That's guaranteed to work. That's the poison pill. Because if your mind, your yitz on the day of death, it chokes life out of its influences. That's the Gemara in Brachos on page five a. These are ways to defeat it to make to prevent the battle. So Joseph and his brothers they arrive, they settle down in the land of Goshen. They're somewhat secluded from the rest of the Egyptians, especially because they're shepherds and. The Egyptians, they deified cattle, strangely enough, and therefore Joseph wanted to highlight that to make sure that they got their seclusion and they wouldn't be adversely influenced by their neighbors. A contingency of the brothers go meet Pharaoh, and Joseph tells them beforehand, be very careful because he likes me a lot and he would love nothing more than to have a whole band of brothers to work his, you know, to work in the government. And Joseph does not want that. So he tells them again, make sure you tell Pharaoh that you're just simple farmers. And actually, what he selects here, he selects from the least of his brothers. He took five of his brothers that were the least imposing. Who are these five brothers? Ruvain, Shimon Levi, Yisachar, and Benjamin. So think about it. The least of the five brothers include Shimon Levi, who slaughtered a whole town. These were the more minor brothers, the, the not so imposing. They're the ones who can maybe pass off as simple farmers and simple uh, shepherds. But the rest of them, th- then Pharaoh would automatically know that these are much more than just simple shepherds. Um, they successfully managed to I'll be allowed to be settled in Goshen. And then uh, Jacob meets Pharaoh. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked the strange question, how old are you? Remember, Pharaoh is the one who had the birthday. He obviously is interested in this question. And Jacob, we know, is 130 years old as he answers. So I guess Jacob looked really old and he asked, he was asked by Pharaoh, how old are you? And Jacob's response really needs to be analyzed. Jacob answered Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourns have been 130 years. Few and bad have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not reached the lifespan of my forefathers in the days of their sojourns. Really strange sentence here. He is making distinctions between days of sojourns and days of life. So he says, my days of sojourns, which is how long have I been breathing? 130 years. But the days of my life is very few. And the ratio of days of life vis-a-vis days of sojourns don't uh, approach the days of life in the days of sojourns of my forefathers. What he's telling us is that there's two kinds of life. There's life, which is you're alive, you're breathing, you know, there's brain activity, and there's spiritual life, where you're actually alive. And for some of us, who knows? Like, you know, maybe we're alive for 10 minutes where we're doing really mitzvahs some people. Maybe people are alive for 10 years and they live for 90 years the days of their sojourns are 90, but the days of real life is, is how long they were studying Torah and doing mitzvot. In fact, part of the evening prayer is that we say about Torah, Kihem chayenu Torah is our life and the length of our days. What this means is that there's a, there's two counters. You know, You look at your ID, it says when you were born. That's the days of sojourns. But the days of your life, well, how is that measured? There's a totally different clock that's counting up the actual years of life, and Jacob is lamenting the fact that his actual life doesn't approach the life of his forefathers. When, when Abraham dies, the Torah testifies upon him that all of his 175 years were real life. What it's saying is that he maximized his days of sojourn to make sure the days of sojourn were all days of, of life. And it does the same thing with Jacob as well, but his personal perspective is that it's not quite like that. Now, if you count the number of and the number of words that Pharaoh tells Jacob and Jacob tells Pharaoh, it, it, the number is thirty-three. Now we know that Jacob dies at the age of one forty-seven. So the the time span of all of the forefathers was. Abraham was 175, Isaac was 180, and Jacob was 147. Why is there a disparity? So we're told that all of them were destined to live for 180. And that's why Isaac lived for 180. Abraham died five years before he should have died because God promised him that you will die you know, with everything, all your accounts being settled, everything will be good. When Esau went awry, Esau is Jacob, is Abraham's grandson, when he started going off, that was when Abraham was 175. God promised Abraham that he will die and things will be good, therefore he had to die before things started going bad. One of his grandsons started misbehaving. In fact, when Jacob... Is preparing the lentils. Lentils are traditional food of mourning because they're circular. And the idea is that, you know, when life, you know, you, things go up and things go down, but there's a cycle. And Esau comes in and he's tired, he's spiritually exhausted because he just started going off on the wrong path. The reason why Abraham, the reason why Jacob is cooking the lentils because Abraham had died and that's the food, food of mourning. And the reason why he had to die early was because Esau was going off. Jacob died at 147. He died 33 years before he should have died. And the reason why is because of these 33 words of this encounter. Jacob is complaining about his life. And therefore, because he's complaining about your life, that's going to deduct from your life as well. And now what's interesting is, is that Jacob is penalized not only for his words, but for Pharaoh's words as well. Apparently, Pharaoh, when Pharaoh was asking the question, that was being prompted by what he saw in Jacob. Jacob gave off an appearance, a sad appearance about his life that prompted Pharaoh to ask, how old are you? And for him to launch into this you know this lamentation about, "Well, my life is not that good, and things aren't that great." So therefore Jacob is penalized not only for his complaining about his life, but also about the appearance that he gave off that other people picked up upon and prompted their question, which brought about his response, which really shows us about, about Jacob's greatness. You know, the only thing that could have deducted possibly from his righteousness is this story where he is complaining about his life. And by the way, even when he is complaining about his life, we learn a very valuable lesson. We learn about what life really is. It's not just breathing. You know, you could, uh, you could invent a computer program that simulates breathing and brain activity. You could do that. That's not life. Life is where your soul is alive. Your body's alive, that's no big deal. To make your soul alive, that's a challenge. That's a very valuable lesson. Even though Jacob taught us a very valuable lesson, because there is an element of complaining, you don't want life, your life is not that great. Oh, you don't want, you don't want to live so much. Okay. We'll deduct one year for every word of complaining. Okay. So the parsha ends, uh, with, the parsha ends with detailing what Joseph you know, Joseph's integrity and diligence while working for Pharaoh. They gathered all the money. Once all the money was gone, they gathered all the livestock, because people need food and they'll sell whatever it is. When 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 all the livestock is owned by Pharaoh, they start buying all the land. They acquired all the land. And what Joseph did to ensure that people recognized the land belonged to Pharaoh. Is that he resettled the cities? You know, if I keep you on your land and you're working for Pharaoh, you still feel an ownership interest or interest. This is my land that's been part of my family for a long time. What J- what Joseph did instead is he resettled everyone, moved everyone around. They weren't they weren't in the environment that they are accustomed to. You know, to, yeah, exactly to, to to believe that they that they are owner that they're owners of it, and that way they know they're all working for Pharaoh. Pharaoh would take a cut of everyone's worth. They'd be sharecroppers for him. And this really shows, I think, um, the, the story, the, the Torah is going out of its way to tell us the detail of the story. The Rabban tells us is that this is to show how this, you know, J- Joseph, how committed he was, as we've seen with every stage of his life. Uh, that he, when he gets committed to something, he does it entirely and perfectly. Even though, you know, Pharaoh has all the money, he has all the livestock, he has everything. What else could he need? Now maybe give the people a freebie. No, well, if they're working for Pharaoh. This was the deal. Uh, this is the deal. And indeed, that they should, they should, Joseph's responsibility to his shareholders, so to speak. Uh, he is tasked with a job. And he has to do his job, and that, you know, that, even though you would say, well, okay, maybe take the, take the, you know, the pedal, the, the, you know, the the foot off the gas a little bit, you know. The truth is, no, your job is to do your job, and Joseph's job was to, to be the fiduciary of Pharaoh in oversight of Egypt, and he had to act in Pharaoh's best interest. And we see today, like to us, it's unimaginable, inconceivable to have a public servant that's so dedicated to their task that bribes are not, not interested in bribes, not interested in skimming a little bit. You know, we've already become accustomed to the fact that there's a certain little kind of the fat, uh, you know, to the tune of a couple billion dollars a year, maybe a $100 billion a year, that are just unaccounted for, they're just part of slush funds, they're, they're just gone. They just had a story in the Wall Street Journal that there's $125 billion missing from the Pentagon's budget, that no one, no one knows where it is. No one has any clue where it is. They're go- it's gone, it's I'll tell you exactly where it is. It's in, it's lining the coffers, yeah. lining line the pockets of corrupt officials. Yeah. And that's, and we're not bothered by that. $125 million, even by any standard, it's a lot of money. It's, yeah, it's chump change maybe for the government, but it's still, it's still a lot of money, right? That was one of the lines, one of the politicians said, a billion here, a billion there. Soon, soon the lady not not talking much. about, you're talking about real money. So, but that's what we've become accustomed to. And, and Joseph is not like that. J- Joseph, and someone that is entirely dedicated to his task the the family of Joseph, the family of Jacob, they settle down in the land and uh, in the land and they and they grow and they become fruitful and they multiply, and there they're going to be for two hundred years and in Netri Parsha, we're going to meet the end of Jacob and the death of Jacob's children and eventually the shift in the way of life of the Jews in Egypt.